Good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to Social Innovation for Refugee Inclusion, Sewing Innovation in the Cracks of Crisis. I'm Megan Benton. I'm the Research Director for the Migration Policy Institute Europe and for MPI's International Program here in DC, which is where I'm joining you from. Uh, we heard yesterday from a terrific set of actors in this space across many countries. Um, we have nearly 600 people registered and chatting to each other on the Hoover platform from 60 different countries, which I think is, is terrific and really a testament to the huge interest in this topic and its timeliness. So thank you so much everyone for joining us and engaging so fully with this um, exciting event. Um, I have to start with some housekeeping notes. Um, if you have any technical problems, you can email events at migrationpolicy.org. Uh, we will have a Q&A at the end of the session. This is not a voice Q&A, so we ask that you either type questions in the Q&A box in Zoom uh, or in Hoover itself. Um, we'll be recording this event, uh, so please keep that in mind. Your question chat might be recorded too, and your question and chat messages will be viewable by the other participants. Um, I have been involved with this conference since 2017, and it's lovely to see so many familiar faces, including on this panel. Uh, social innovation has never been about small initiatives that are well-intentioned, but only serve 12 people. It's always been about seeding new ideas to change systems and build new types of community. And I like to think that this conference has helped with some of that community building, even if today's event is taking place under such different terms. Um, I can't think of a better time to be coming together to think about ways to restructure systems and institutions than as we begin to emerge from a global pandemic and think about whether our social fabric and economies and civic space are in the service of all. So today's session is called Planning and Shaping an Inclusive Post-COVID Recovery. And as I was thinking about this session, I think often with the word recovery, there's an assumption that we're talking largely about economic recovery. But I wanted to suggest as by way of an opener that there are three different ways that we can think about recovery and the role of inclusion within it. The first is obviously economic recovery. So the job losses wrought by the pandemic fell disproportionately on migrants and refugees, um, perhaps because they were working in sectors that bore the brunt of the pandemic in precarious work, working in essential jobs forced to choose between staying safe and staying solvent. But right now we're seeing this kind of reconfiguration of the jobs on offer and where they are. Many sectors have undergone significant transformation, working practices have changed, people have moved occupations or left the labor force entirely. And how can we make sure that refugees and migrants take advantage of this churn, that it doesn't exacerbate polarization and support refugees and migrants to be entrepreneurs and drivers of the recovery? The second is social recovery. The world is recovering from a collective trauma, a shock that placed extreme pressure on our normal ways of interacting, on belonging, on socializing. And the kind of social capital that has been most depleted is relationships between people of different backgrounds. You know, we've retreated into our echo chambers, our smaller social bubbles, and the spontaneous interaction that's the lifeblood of diverse societies has been somewhat muted. So how can we begin this process of social healing and create the conditions for meaning relationships uh, to flourish among people of different backgrounds? And then finally, a civic recovery in the way that we do governance, deliver public services and shape public space. There's been a huge amount of innovation in the past 18 months in keeping vital services going. And Mary Coulter from the Canadian Mission spoke yesterday about how shifting to online and hybrid formats has made it possible to overcome some barriers to services such as childcare and transport barriers. 
So how can we use this opportunity to learn from the pandemic, restructure services and institutions to be more accessible, make sure that those without digital proficiency aren't left out, and how can we more structurally engage communities in designing and delivering services and create ways to institutionalize participation so that we're engaging diverse groups in conversations about the kind of societies we want to live in. I'm very pleased that we have a terrific lineup of speakers who can touch on all these different aspects of inclusive recovery and discuss ways that government, the private sector, the social sector can work together to support a post-pandemic recovery that reflects the needs of diverse communities. Uh, first, we'll hear from Christina Pope from Welcoming International, which is an initiative of Welcoming America, which supports and connects civil society and government institutions advancing migrant inclusion at the local level across the world. And then we have Anila Noor, who's a member of the European Commission's expert group on the views of migrants and the founder of New Women Connectors, a movement striving to mainstream unheard voices of migrant and refugee women living in Europe. Then we'll have Scarlett Cronin, Acting Executive Director of the Tent Partnership for Refugees. The Tent Partnership is made up of 180 companies committed to including refugees across the world um, in industries from consumer goods and technology to financial and professional services. And then finally, Katharina Bamberg, who is Policy Advisor on Migration and Integration from Eurocities, the network of 20 cities that seeks to promote the involvement of cities in European decision-making. Um, on your Hoover app, you have full bios of all the participants, and I encourage you to read those and, and connect with them um, perhaps later on. So I'm going to start with Christina. Hi, Christina, where are you joining us from today? Hi, Megan. I'm joining you from St. Louis in the United States. Great. Well, nice to, nice to, nice to see you. Thanks for, for being here. So Welcoming America um, and Welcoming International have been at the forefront of discussions around local inclusion in the age of, of COVID-19. And I guess the real advantage is that Welcoming America has very long-standing experience in creating concrete instruments to support communities. What does inclusive recovery mean to you based on that long-standing experience, especially for communities that don't have decades of experience catering to diverse populations and needs? Great, thanks, Megan. Thanks for the invitation. And, and thank you also for setting up this conversation as one that's about not just economic recovery, but also social and civic, which I think are sometimes left behind. You know, what we've observed from our experience supporting communities that are urban, rural, and suburban in the United States and through our partner networks in Canada, Germany, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand, um, is that there are really many factors for successful recovery, but there are three that rise to the top that no matter the experience of uh, a city or another level of government um, with migrant inclusion, that things that are really accessible for anyone. Um, so one of those is listening. You now listening to what refugees, migrants, and longtime residents need and hope for, what are the top priorities for them in recovery? And really that if leaders don't have the connections to garner this type of feedback in a trusted way that they're finding out who can do that and they're building a mutual partnership with them to do that. And I think an example of this comes from Contra Costa County in California in the United States, where they're working on a roadmap for a more inclusive county moving through and out of COVID-19. So they're synthesizing community feedback, they're doing listening sessions, 
they're doing surveys, um, and they're also including their own personal and lived experience as migrants within government in Contra Costa County. I think the second factor that I would name is multi-sector leadership and collaboration. So really gathering the people who have a stake in the issue, helping them imagine a better way forward and inviting them to be part of the solution. And again, having that range of migrant organizations and leaders that are invited to these tables. And we see this happening in many cities. Um, for example, Peterborough in the UK has just started a housing task force regarding affordable housing for Afghan evacuees and others that are currently searching for affordable housing. And the final thing I name is around narrative and really having a can-do narrative explaining why leaders are investing in inclusion and linking it to broader issues such as economic development, racial equity, or indigenous rights. Um, and I think we see a great example of this coming from Canada, where just a couple of weeks ago, the federal government hosted the first welcoming week, um, which was a series of events and messaging around how immigration matters to Canada's economy and culture. And I think this sort of narrative building um, creates a path forward and helps create a story for a community around how they're involved and, and why it's important. So those are the things I named here. Looking forward to, to the rest of the discussion. Well, perhaps I can just ask you a very quick follow-up before we go to Anila. Um, so I love the idea that there are tools that are low cost and accessible and this idea of bringing different partners to the table. But you know, how much has been more difficult during COVID and how much of that stuff has kind of waned because of just the difficulties of bringing people together during the pandemic? It's a great question and it, it is more difficult. I think initially we saw a pause to this type of multi-sector convening um, when we thought that we might quickly get back to normal. <laughs> but within a few months, um, of course, people begin innovating. And so we've seen some really great virtual approaches to you know, virtual town halls, virtual meetings, um, using simultaneous interpretation on Zoom and other platforms to make these things happen. Um, but also you know, getting back to some of the, the very original tools of community organizing, which involve door-to-door, -door, uh, you know, knocking on doors, involves phone calls, um, involves the many platforms we have for texting, um, so this is really still happening. And I think, um, you know, in moments of crisis, that's when the leaders that choose to come together and reach other sectors, the people who choose to bridge divides are the ones that are really setting the path forward rather than sort of treading water, hoping for something to change. Um, so yeah, we, we really celebrate those, um, those leaders that have been able to still come together and convene in these times. Great, thank you so much. <clears throat> um, I want to turn to Anila now, who I, as I said, was the, the European Commission's expert group on the views of migrants and um, also uh, founded New Women Connectors. Um, and Anila, it's lovely to be on a panel with you um, again. I know you've been um, um, in this social innovation conference several times now, so thank you for joining us again. Uh, where are you joining us from today? Yes, hi, Megan. I'm joining uh, from Netherlands in a very rainy and very Dutch weather. <laughs> Today. <laughs> Sorry to hear it. Yes. Um, well, at least you can get your sweaters out. I'm very excited to embrace my um, autumn clothes. Um, so over the past five years, you've had um, a central role in many initiatives that 
seek to better represent the um, expertise and interests of migrants and refugees in policymaking, including through the, the expert group. Do you think these mechanisms worked and how did they carry us through the pandemic? Yeah, thank you, Megan. I, I think this is a very crucial moment, especially uh, during this pandemic, this COVID, um, there to learning this opportunity, which we can reflect the journey as a refugee uh, leader and refugee woman, which I went through and experienced. I really want to highlight those two um, important factors. One is COVID pandemic give us similarity. Like if we say, oh, we had pandemic, we were in COVID, everyone can easily resonate and reflect. They can feel the same because we know very well in this generation who went through 2020, there will be no one to uh, learn more, to go open the Google or go to the books. We, if, within a few seconds, we can realize, you know, okay, we had this pandemic, it was horrible. But again, this COVID magnify the inequalities, magnify the privilege, magnify actually distribution of even information. And then if we go to vaccine or the safe water, uh, clean water, uh, getting sanitations or getting the hygiene production is again magnify the inequalities. And when we come and the talk about the policy, it means we are talking about position and power. Again, we are trying to change the transformation, you know, how we can make sure this time which we have this, uh, you know, uh, a pause in our regular normal life through this pandemic, how we can make this possible to take this opportunity and to implement, to implement to all the transformation as a change. Because in the beginning, Magnum, you talk about the recovery. For me, I think I think there are so many communities who are vulnerable position. The recovery is far away from them. They are really even trying to be secure, to be feel at home, even to get the information. Like what's like, if I say being living in Europe, I always say I have this privilege to get technology, to be online, to order online. But just imagine as a refugee, especially as a woman who is trying to be get safe path or get to secure a future, there are so many hurdles for her. And there is difficult uh, element to give her according to her need because system does not allow. System always says investment. And being my role in the policies in Europe, it started in 2015 and 16. And we say we are struggling. As a refugee leader, we are trying to advocate of meaningful participation, but what does this mean? Still, we see people are not, do not understand and we are really trying to transform it, this meaningful participation or engagement inclusive uh, by people, like nothing about us, with our, us, it still becomes like a tokenization and the word of how we can contribute to make it a mechanism. So we do not feel a distance when we are having, uh, there's a closed space, there's um, you know open space and there's invited place like this. So I've been invited to be, share my experience, my knowledge, my expertise as experience. But the thing is that we're really trying to bring a little bit more inclusive uh, approach. And also, uh, I, I like uh, Christina talk about uh, narratives because I always say this is main key. We're still stuck. You know, when we are talking about migrants and refugee, and especially with women, we think, yes, they are vulnerable, but we are system are making them vulnerable. They are resilient people. If you can see in my back, 
address, we put, we are leading resilient people. We are trying to change the narrative to be actively co-partner in the debate as not as a beneficiary, not as a project, not as a target group, but how we can change because either is Europe or any kind of region is required are continuously sourcing, partnering. Yeah, I, I don't know how much I time, otherwise, you know, this is my topic. I, I love to talk about this, yes. Please go ahead and finish that point. Um, you, yes. have, you have another yes. minute. Sure. Okay, good, yeah, yeah. Because in if I stay with the engagement or participation, we really need to understand how we involve refugee and migrant and how we give them the understanding um, you know, tools to be engaged and to listen to them. I always say like today morning, I was in a one a leadership training and they were saying, okay, we, we need to listen to leaders and these are leaders. But I, I said, audience is important. You know, audience is very important. Who has the mic? Who has the right to hold the mic? Sometimes being a refugee and migrant, we are giving temporary mic and then after the, those events, snatch away those mics. We don't know how we can see who, who is making these changes and how we've been part of recommendation, but how we can go beyond consultation, how we can act more even to see the changes and we can say, oh, we recommend this and now see this is the evidence. It's been changed now, but unfortunately we are a little bit behind. And if it's happened in Europe, I always say then you can imagine what's happening in other part of the world. If Europe, which is dwelt, and still if we are giving the importance of securing the border in terms of human rights, then it's it's really a big barrier for us. And the gender equality, gender lens is so far overlooked. Um, it's, it's, it's coming from South Asian culture, I never thought that will be too much vague in Europe. So we really need to bring gender sensitivity, what is equity, what is equality, how we can make a transformation as a mechanism, as a tool. You know, it's not like we just make some kind of uh, difficult jargon for the communities to engage, but how we can really help them, capable, give them skills, you know, give them uh, knowledge, but also to understand them. You know, it, it is like how we can bring feminist intersectional lens in our debate. So, so perhaps I can just ask you what you think the priority should be right now, because you paint a picture of this um, COVID not having been the great leveler, but having magnified many inequalities, including of information, as you as you said. Um, and, and then there's a risk now that um, instead of tapping into that resilience that you spoke about, there's just a kind of like token tokenization of, of my refugees. But what, what would a more strategic approach and a more thoughtful approach look like? Um, and how could perhaps, you know, the, the European institutions, for instance, what, what should priorities be at that level? Yeah, uh, I think the best approach is how we can not only one-way communication, but also uh, we can contribute in their, uh, you know, migrant-led, refugee-led initiative to contribute to their in, in initiative. It's not like we go always to them to invite them but how we can participate there and i uh, i always say how we can co-design co-dwell because as a migrant and refugee this is our experience but also as expertise so take it as expertise not only to share our voices or our stories telling the journey of board journey of uh, food or music you know but how 
this is my knowledge and how we can convert it uh, to translate into expertise and how we can learn about what is the mechanism like obviously if we go to the doctor and we we want to recover we don't get a doctorate degree no but what we say okay doctor has his expertise to diagnose but he can't diagnose without understanding what's my problem so how we can make a cohesion this is really important thank you very much Nella. Uh, I'm going to turn now to Scarlett from Tent. Um, so in, in recent years, the private sector has played quite a big role in developing new solutions for refugee inclusion. Um, but we have to be fairly upfront about the fact that when we talk about an inclusive recovery, um, like many businesses have struggled during, during the pandemic. Do you think that refugee and migrant inclusion has moved down the list of, of priorities and other ways to kind of raise it back up again? <clears throat> Thanks, Megan. Um, so nice to be here um, on this panel and to to follow Anila. I agree with so many of the points. I also forgot to forgot oh, yeah. to ask you where you're joining us from. So oh. please feel free to. Sure, I am joining from Brooklyn, which is also gloomy. So I think it's a little a little dark in my in my bedroom right now. Um, but great to be here. Um, you know, I was just saying, agree with so many of the points Anila just made. So it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to to follow her. Um, and. Um, I think just to start, in, in terms of the role of the private sector over the past few years, um, you're absolutely right that we've seen um, many more businesses um, stepping up for refugees and um, kind of getting involved in this issue. And the reality is that all of our communities are stronger when refugees are able to integrate fully, become productive members of society as they wish to be, um, and are really you know, given that opportunity. And that's really the driving kind of tenet for our work um, here at the Tent Partnership for Refugees. So um, our, our founder, um, Hamdi Ulukaya, is the CEO of a, of a food company here in the US, has hired refugees for years and saw just the amazing motivation and dedication and loyalty they brought to his business and wanted to encourage other companies um, to think beyond philanthropy and to really find ways to help refugees integrate for the long term into their new community. So that's that's really our driving principle here at Tent. And a lot of the work we do is around um, topics and issues like training and hiring and mentorship um, for refugees, again, so that there is an opportunity for them to, you know, become self-reliant and, and not have to necessarily, you know, be dependent on, on others. Um, and that is done, you know, I think with um, very much the, the business community in mind, that's really the role that we play in terms of mobilizing businesses, um, but then bringing, of course, refugees into this in terms of programs that would be most useful um, for them. And, and so just wanted to mention that up front. And, you know, I think, yes, it is true that COVID you know, impacted everyone, of course. And for a while, our work was quieter um, at the beginning of the pandemic. Those first few months, you know, we got fewer, um, our, our calls were returned a little bit less, our emails kind of went unnoticed um, to the businesses we were working with, you know, and that was for four or five months. But I think the really good news is that over the past year, our network went from 150 major businesses, and these are companies like Unilever and GSK and Barilla and L'Oreal, went from 150 major companies to now 200. So we actually have not seen a huge slowdown um, or decrease in terms of companies that are mobilizing on this issue of integrating refugees um, and really stepping up in this way. And there's a couple of things that we have done um, over the past few months, I think to at first to kind of cater for the times in terms of COVID, but turned out to be 
think really useful in terms of this piece around social recovery. So the first is around mentorship. We launched a program here in North America where employees at companies are mentoring LGBTQ refugees who are among the most vulnerable um, and providing really practical guidance um, and tips on how to navigate the, the market, whether in Canada or the US, you know, feedback on CVs, um, you know, what your LinkedIn profile should look like, but, but really helping um, kind of position um, those who are new to the US in, in terms of how to um, find access to employment. And we've actually, um, we're taking that to Europe in a few weeks. We're really excited about that to focus on refugee women who are um, also among the most vulnerable within the refugee population when it comes to finding um, job opportunities or advancing their careers in a meaningful way that they would like to. So um, similarly, employees at, at companies will be mentoring um, refugee women. And we've seen huge dividends, both in terms of what employees at companies get out of this, in addition, of course, to the mentors. So it's been a real win-win for us. And in COVID times, it was virtual, um, but I think we might actually keep it virtual. We're getting feedback that that works really well. Um, you know, we'll kind of see how things go, but that's been just, I think for us, really um, an illustrative sign that businesses are not stepping away from the issue of supporting refugees, even during this time, um, but are looking for other ways to engage their own employees uh, and to really step up. And then um, just another example of where we're not seeing companies kind of abdicate, um, I think this is definitely different country by country, but it's around the most recent crisis, um, you know, that's unfolded in Afghanistan. So here in the US, we've launched a coalition of more than 40 businesses, um, companies like Pfizer, um, The Gap, Hilton, UPS, um, all of whom are very, very keen to hire um, Afghans that are coming over to the US. And we're not just talking about entry level jobs. These companies are looking at management jobs and trying to match make the skill sets as much as possible um, to what is going to be relevant um, and, and desired from, from the refugee community. So we've seen honestly tremendous um, interest in joining this coalition here in the US. We're now looking at what we can do in other countries where the government has been I would say quite forward in terms of resettlement. Um, so looking at Europe um, as well as in Canada for expanding this work. So I think for us, the, the storyline is actually quite positive that businesses, while they have you know, many issues always to be thinking about socially and environmentally are not stepping away um, from refugees, at least in the work that, that we're seeing for the most part. But we also really do try to push the needle all the times um, and, be bring, and, and bring to companies new ways that they can think about engaging. And we're very persistent. So I think that's part of it as well. Um, and I'll pause there. Thank you so much um, for those terrific concrete examples um, and um, for describing you know, your goals and, and, and having that note of optimism as well. But I, I wanted to push you a little bit on this, this broader goal about moving beyond philanthropy and getting companies to really think about their whole business model instead of just mm -hmm. the corporate social responsibility arm or whatever. Um, what are the lessons from the sort of wave of enthusiasm and energy and money that came in, in 2015, 2016, when that kind of waned and interest waned a little bit. And what are the lessons for this current moment and for conversations around the Afghanistan crisis? Are there ways that you can kind of make the case to companies that this needs to be a sustainable and permanent shift, not just to kind of like throw a bit of money and excitement at something for a year or two? Yeah, it's a great question. So, I mean, we've been at this for a while. Um, Hamdi, our founder, launched Tent um, in 2015. And, 
we, I think there's a couple of things. Um, number one is we really invest in the business case and bringing the business case to businesses. So for example, around hiring, not only is it, you know, like the right thing to do, there's also very, very strong business reasons um, to hire refugees. So we've done research with think tanks, which have shown that refugees stay on the job longer. That was definitely our founder's experience with, with what he saw with refugees and immigrants being hired at his company. But we wanted to understand, okay, what does this actually look like in across industries? And found that the turnover rate um, for refugees is one third um, lower than that of their non-refugee employees. So refugees, um, when, when companies hire them, they are going to see that those benefits brought to their business. Um, and so that for us is a very strong argument. We've also looked at things like how do consumers respond to businesses that support refugees? We've done that research um, in Latin America, in the US, um, in, in several countries in Europe, and have found that consumers, especially millennials, which won't surprise any of us, but that consumers um, on net, um, and again, especially millennials, um, are more likely to purchase from businesses that support refugees in various ways. And that's because consumers want their businesses to take a stand on these, on these issues. So we bring this data and this evidence to companies so that it's not just about the humanitarian side of things, which again is so important. And there's many wonderful organizations that are doing that work. That's just not our focus. And say, it's fantastic to donate to organizations, there's a time and a place for that, but let's talk about the longer term game here, the longer term situation that we actually find ourselves in. And you as a business have an opportunity to make sure that refugees are going to become fully productive in their communities in the way that we will all benefit from. So we are looking for um, business arguments um, to bring to companies. So it's not just like, hey, this is something you should consider doing, but but to bring a really sound argument. So we've, we've developed that over the past few years and it's come in really handy um, recently. And then I think we're in a pretty unique opportunity if I can call it that right now, um, in terms of job markets in various countries, just coming out of COVID, um, workers, you know, being in kind of short supply. But again, we want to make sure that um, whether it's Afghan refugees or other refugees, that businesses are thinking about career advancement and promotions and opportunities that are going to be really meaningful. Great, thank you so much. Um, I'm going to now turn to Katharina Bamberg from Eurocity. The cities were really on the front line when it came to protecting vulnerable groups during the pandemic emergency response. And then most recently, they've been uh, quite proactive in their response to the Afghanistan crisis and, and shown how they want to be leaders in migration protection and inclusion. Um, how can cities link these priorities of inclusion and cohesion with other major objectives, um, such as urban development, um, in what is still quite uncertain time? Yeah, thanks a lot, Megan. Um, hello from rainy Brussels from my side. Um, and thanks also to um, MPI. Universal rain. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, we're, we have an unlucky day today, all of us. But, um, you yeah, know, thank you uh, to MPI um, and to the co-organizers for inviting Eurocities as well to this conference. Um, and I think there have been so many uh, interesting um, examples mentioned already. So bear with me if I'm uh, sort of touching on the same same points, but uh, from a city perspective, of course. Um, because what we do at Eurocities is that we, of course, support uh, cities and trying to foster inclusive and open societies. Um, and I think that's also one of the core objectives of urban development um, 
during the context that we want to uh, discuss today. Um, and I think it's definitely been also one of the core objectives before the pandemic, but of course this has taken on a new urgency and a new dimension now as well with the pandemic. Um, and I think now more than ever, it's um, really crucial to look at innovative ways uh, in which um, yeah, migrants and refugees can be um, in included and integrated in society um, and how that also shapes open societies more generally. And as we all know, of course, the cities um, that we also represent uh, at EuroCities really have been um, yeah, hit quite hard by the pandemic um, in terms of um, city budgets being stretched, different groups in society also being impacted uh, on so many different levels in cities. Um, and so this is also a little bit where our work comes in at EuroCities um, and all of our work on integration is sort of um, pulled together in our integrating cities process. Um, where we try to work with uh, cities um, in building on their responsibilities as policymakers, as um, service providers, employers, um, as well as buyers of goods and services. So perhaps that also links a little bit here and there to the work that um, my co-panelists are doing. Um, so I think a lot of the work that we are doing with the integrating cities process um, links to social innovation on so many different levels. Um, and I think that also provides a very good basis for the different points that I want to make uh, just now in my short uh, introduction. And I would just like to mention three things today, um, that it's important to involve migrant communities, that we need to um, build local ecosystems um, of integration, and that we also need to support neighborhood engagement and really creating those inclusive societies. Um, so to come back to the first point, facilitating the engagement for migrant communities, um, I think we can see uh, in different European cities that this really has taken on a new level of engagement. And so many cities have created, supported, uh, linked up with migrant councils uh, on the local level. And I think also now we're seeing that turn towards mainstreaming that a little bit more. So not just focusing on integration policy making, but really mainstreaming the council across different policy areas, really trying to co-create services together. Um, and one example here I would, I would mention is the city of Toulouse. Um, they have established a Toulouse Diversity Council, um, I think at the beginning of the pandemic actually. Um, and they are trying to promote civic integration, innovation and uh, economic, social and cultural integration in the city. Um, and what I find quite interesting there as well is that they are actually part of our EuroCities working group on migration and integration. So we also try to bring them in on that EU policy level uh, discussion that we're having here in Brussels. Um, so that's just one, one point uh, on, on bringing in migrant councils, but then of course, Different cities are also consulting citizens more widely. There's also a push now for participative uh, budgeting. So I think it's really an interesting um, time to, to discuss about that. And of course, Anila being here from the expert group um, is, is in the best position to talk about these things also here in, uh, in the EU context. Um, and then the second point I wanted to mention, um, really harnessing those local ecosystems of integration. Um, and I think here, to translate that into normal English, um, a closer cooperation um, between government, between businesses, NGOs, and really bringing together different stakeholders, right? 
Um, another example I would bring in here from a city is um, the city of Solna in Sweden. And they've created a really interesting uh, model, which they call the, the Solna model for labor market integration, where they really partner up with the different businesses, with the different uh, employers uh, in the city. Um, and they really try to connect both on that business perspective, but then also create an interpersonal uh, link of the different people working in the field. Um, and then they have a number of interviews. They really try to establish that relationship. Um, and in the end, that um, leads to a very thorough matching between participants in the programs so or migrants and refugees and employers and so on. Um, and apparently they have been quite successful with that. So I think also important to keep that interpersonal element. And then as a last point um, for now, perhaps, um, I think it's also super important to really look at social cohesion through a neighborhood engagement, um, as I said in the beginning. Um, of course, also in terms of just feeling a shared responsibility between all inhabitants in a neighborhood, um, not just newcomers, but really all different uh, groups in society. Um, and one big factor that I would mention here is volunteering. Um, and this is actually also where at EuroCities we have concluded a project on that um, last year. It was a three-year um, EU-funded project here um, where we focused on volunteering, uh, volunteering activities um, to promote uh, European social integration of migrants. Um, and one specific cluster in that, in that project was actually on um, migrant integration at neighborhood level. Um, and one another city example that I would like to bring in here um, is Amsterdam, um, because Amsterdam, um, perhaps some of you will know, they have different city districts, and in each of those city districts, there are about um, three to four community centers, um, which are called Huizen van de Wijk. Uh, Anila, you will probably be able to help me with the pronunciation here, but uh, um, so that's pretty much um, the system that they have those community centers. Um, they are funded by the municipality through um, a social basis subsidy scheme, which really enables um, different activities taking place in those community uh, centers, um, which really helps to support neighborhood inhabitants to participate in the activities as well, um, and which really creates a space where people can come together. Um, so in that sense, um, through those volunteering activities that are taking place in those centers, of course, there's a shared feeling of coming together as a neighborhood, but I think it's also important in terms of reducing the fragmentation of different buildings, spaces, uh, and programs. And it really also helps the city to effectively save costs by bringing things together like that. Um, so I think I'm, I'm gonna leave it here for now, um, but I think in general, just one point perhaps to take away is that really coming together with different stakeholders, with different groups, it has been important before, but I think it also in terms of social innovation, it's going to be even more important going forward, um, also in the recovery from the pandemic. Thank you so much. That was such a rich um, intervention full of concrete examples and the sort of different things that cities are doing from volunteering to procurement. Um, I wanted to ask by way of a follow up. Um, about this mainstreaming point that you mentioned towards the beginning. Um, so uh, um, I kind of geek out a little bit about, about mainstreaming and as someone who's kind of followed this for a while, the idea of mainstreaming inclusion has really followed a sort of political cycle of interest and in integration or when it wanes. And there's obviously been a risk that, um, that uh, different levels of government embrace the idea of mainstreaming as a way to kind of deprioritize inclusion priorities. Whereas in some places it's a way to elevate them. And I was just wondering what 
is really happening right now, given that, you know, everything has been um, very preoccupied with the pandemic and with sort of like a lot of basic survival necessity type questions. Um, is, is, is some of this work a way of deprioritizing it or is it really a thoughtful way to um, embed inclusion across all areas of public services? Um, I mean, I would definitely say it has helped in elevating um, yeah, that mainstreaming approach across different uh, policy areas. Um, and I think in that sense, it, it really speaks to just the necessity of what is there across different policy areas again. I mean, what we've seen, for instance, in public health uh, during the pandemic, um, we've seen different migrant organizations, different refugee organizations teaming up with cities um, in, for instance, reaching out to their communities, right? And this is something that um, cities would not have been able to do just by themselves because simply that connection to the local communities is much different um, than when it comes from an official side. Um, and I think it's also something that's really important in terms of the language, in terms of the communication channels that you use, as well as in terms of the sort of um, familiarity um, with how you can reach people. So I think that's just one example, but that mainstreaming approach really through public health has proven to be successful, right? So I would uh, I would also hope, and I think we can be positive about that going forward, that this approach can also be extended to other policy areas. I mean, for instance, housing or employment or education, where really it makes sense to draw on the experiences of people that have lived through those processes to really make them more adequate, to make them more accessible, and really try to improve them through that process. Thank you very much. Um, so I am now going to open the floor for questions. And those of you who are watching, you have two ways to answer question, ask questions. One is through the Zoom Q&A and one is through the Hoover platform. And we are monitoring both and we'll put your uh, questions to the participants. Um, and while you gather your questions, I wanted to ask um, our lovely panel if you have any questions for one another or any comments on the interventions. We've had a very rich discussion so far and Perhaps I can turn to Christina for any reflections on what you've heard. Off. Thank you. Yes, it's difficult to decide where to begin because we've heard so many good points um, just in these last few minutes. You know, I would love to talk a little bit more about participatory budgeting. I know Katarina mentioned this and Anila um, also alluded to it. I think a challenge we see here is that as local governments and, and other leaders with resources are surveying residents on budget priorities for recovery spending, sometimes really talking about huge, you know, huge amounts of money, um, that those surveys are often not available in multiple languages. Sometimes they're not delivered by trusted connectors. The surveys appear to be a scam. <laughs> so this attempt to bring in community engagement is sometimes not successful. So I'm wondering if any of the panelists would like to um, highlight examples where it has been successful or other really concrete examples of community engagement that are, are working well now. Uh, well, perhaps we can go to Katerina since you have your hand up and if you could respond to that and also put any new questions to the floor. And then Anila, if you wanted to respond as well, that would be great. So Kat um, Yes, okay. So actually um, about um, the, the question of making participatory budgeting more inclusive and accessible um, because there's a language divide there as well. Um, absolutely agree. And I think that's something where 
yeah, there's still a lot of, of work to be done. Um, but from the top of my head, um, perhaps to just give one example, um, I know that the um, city of Tampere in, in Finland, and of course the Scandinavian countries are, are um, very much at the forefront of, of such um, developments, that the city of Tampere um, has actually um, translated all of their um, yeah, documents when it comes to participatory budgeting also into English to make sure that um, their international community is also included in the process. Um, so I think that's just one way of, of showing how a city can really aim to engage all of the city population a little bit more um, by, by really translating the documents. Um, and perhaps Megan, now that I'm talking, you will allow me to ask a question myself as well. Um, and that's that's actually going to Christina and to Scarlett, um, because I would be keen to know um, if perhaps in your organizations you're working with uh, cities in the US as well, and how that has been for you during the pandemic. Um, I'd love to go to Anila first, um, in, in case you have a response to this question of how you get trust in participatory budgeting, not just the translation piece, but also trust seems to be very key. Um, and then we'll hand over to Scarlett, we're doing a kind of relay. Yeah, thank you, Megan. I, I think this participatory budget, it's really important right now, but we really need to unpack what does it mean? You know, the understanding, the resources, the tool, everything. When as a refugee-led uh, organization, sometimes we face a difficulty even to get registration because it's required um, to have a basic uh, setup so we can get more uh, funding or resources. So if this is the initial point where many organizations are facing difficulties, even in Europe. So we, we are hearing and we're trying to bring more understanding and trying to give this reflection uh, as a uh, being part of um, expert group and other um, migrant-led uh, advisory board. We always say we are when we are designing, this is the thing which is not giving them equal meaningful participation. The systematic change required change. And this change is so hard and so difficult because it's easy to say, oh, our structure does not allow to hire you. Our structure do not allow to have this. So that's the structure we are trying to change. That's why we are advocating to give them understanding like it's not working for anyone because then what happens, we have more and more integration, uh, inclusion uh, projects which runs two years, three years, but without any concrete impact. And we are just running again and again in a vicious cycle where we are just creating projects and programs, but the impact is still so much far away. And we are creating more people who are feeling distance. And it's again, I will say, it's not about refugee migrants. It's about how we can create inclusive cities, how we can create our inclusive cohesion society. Because in that, we all are human beings. Sometimes I really feel we need to take away this refugee migrant identity or you know uh, label. I'm a human being. I'm a woman with my own skills, with my own expertise, and with I my own knowledge. Do I have to tell like I'm a refugee to get your attention? or you can hire me as a policy advisor. So this is really a question we need to understand. Well, why you are invited me as of my expertise or just to share my complaints? So, yeah. <laughs> so it's not so much trust with the actual delivery and uh, making sure that um, programs really go somewhere and that there's meaningful participation throughout. 
Um, thank you. And I want to hand it now to Scarlett, either for the participatory budgeting point um, or for the role of cities. Oh, and Anila, sorry, would you like to throw out a question for the other participants? Yes, before we I hand do, over to I Scarlett? Do. Yes, uh, my question is, I think, really for Scarlett, because we as a uh, migrant uh, refugee-led initiative, we're feeling distance from private sector. And maybe you could come and guide us, you know, give your insight how we can create more, uh, you know, partnership with the private sector, especially when it's come to uh, for the women's participation from the gender lens, we are feeling different being uh, coming up from developing countries, how we can navigate our labor market, uh, you know, starting from here. So I would love to see how we can join some kind of further discussion. Oh, Scarlett, you've scooped up three questions now, so please feel free to pick and choose. I'm, I'm going to pass on participatory budgeting just because that's that's less in our, our area. And so maybe yeah, just to respond to um, to Anila's comment, absolutely, we would love to love to chat and love to connect um, on that. I think we um, because we're really trying to get businesses involved um, and, and you know, beyond philanthropy in meaningful ways, we're always trying to figure out as well, what is going to be the framing that businesses will respond to? Um, not that that has to be like the end all be all, but for example, around diversity and inclusion as, you know, a, a corporate framework that companies really respond to, um, you know, in, in various, um, um, in various countries, that for us can be a really great starting point um, to then have a, a pretty honest and serious conversation about what the company could be doing um, better in terms of really looking at how it can be more inclusive of refugee women, for example. So, so something I'd love to connect with you on because obviously um, you will have incredibly good insights and suggestions in terms of what that looks like from your perspective. So we should definitely follow up on that. But I think that's, that's where we've been successful in these past few years. And, and I would say same with the focus on LGBTQ refugees where so many businesses you know, have very developed um, employee resource groups around supporting the LGBTQ community. So for them, they weren't necessarily thinking about refugees, but when we made that connection around interse intersectionality um, of the LGBTQ refugee community, they were so excited and keen to engage their employees on supporting refugees in, in that way. So we're always trying to look for these like creative ways to really um, to get companies attention. And then the broader goal is that they will take many steps in support of integrating refugees. So let's, let's definitely connect. Um, and then in terms of cities, so yeah, it's a great question. Um, we have definitely done, I would say, like work at the city level, but not nearly in, in terms of, you know, what Katarina or others are doing or, or Christina, it's been more, how can we engage, let's say city chambers of commerce um, or at the local municipality level in Europe as well. We do, I do have colleagues in Europe that, that work um, throughout, the, throughout the continent on these issues too, um, to, to, to kind of bring together um, the work that we do around mobilizing businesses and, and trying to make cities more inclusive. But I, I can't say it's been a major priority for us, but just as one example here in the US, um, and it's not a, not a priority because we don't think it's important. We've just, we, we've just focused on some other kind of angles and mechanisms, but here in the US, we've embarked recently on a sort of like 
campaign across the country to try to educate as many city chambers as possible about this kind of renewed um, commitment from the Biden administration to welcome 300,000 refugees over the next several years. And then as well as the latest kind of um, um, from the Afghan community as well. So we're going to Georgia and Iowa and kind of as many as many places as we can to really try to get in front of the business community. It also goes back to this narrative piece as well to showcase what um, amazing, you know, attributes and talent and skill sets refugees would bring um, to to businesses if they haven't already thought about hiring them or supporting them in other ways. So that's that's kind of how we think about the city piece um, for the most part. So um, I think there's more we could do there. Thank you. And then I'd love to take this to Christina for any thoughts on US cities. Sure, thanks. And, and Scarlett, you teed this up well in terms of the, the way you're hitting the ground running with chambers. Um, yes, in the US context, you know, what we found in terms of inclusive recovery with city and county governments is that the good practices are rather consistent pre, during, and post-emergency. Um, and I'll put a tool in the chat later that sort of describes those strategies for language access, multi-sector collaboration but really that the challenge comes in resourcing and maintaining these strategies. Um, and I think one really concrete example of, of this in practice is from a multi-sector collaboration in Pittsburgh in the United States. Uh, this is a mid-sized city that was receiving feedback from residents and social sector organizations that housing availability and affordability was a big problem and needs to be addressed immediately and through recovery. So the city government and social sector organizations partnered on a convening with private sector landlords to share information about arriving refugees. And they invited landlords to actually sign on to a welcoming landlord network to proactively share housing availability with social sector organizations. And this model has since been replicated in Philadelphia and other US cities um, that we've shared across our network of about 200 local governments in the US. So this is really a great strategy implemented by city officials who are migrants themselves working in city government and also civil society organizations that are migrant led. But now the challenge will be maintaining this effort as the city elects a new mayor in the next uh, couple of months. But I think the strength here is that Pittsburgh has built this strong multi-sector collaborative that meets regularly. During the pandemic, they met every week initially and now it's every other week. So we expect that civil society will continue to ask for this commitment from the city, even when there's a new mayor. Um, and also Pittsburgh completed a welcoming city certification. And in order to maintain this designation, three years from now, they have to demonstrate that they have maintained this infrastructure. So there's an incentive to continue to be seen on a national and international level as you know, one of the cities that's, that's leading this work. So I think those are some forms of external motivation that encourage sectors to partner on designing, to use co-design, as Anila said, um, with residents, and really promote those strategies for recovery that reflect the needs of diverse communities. Thank you so much. Um, I, I have some audience questions now that I'm, I'm going to pose to you all. Um, one really terrific question um, from Ryan Figueredo is, can we talk about mental health and well-being and how this is also part of uh, recovery? I think that would fit in well with my opening remarks. This really should have been one as well. Um, and perhaps I can pose this initially to Katerina and then ask if others want to, to chip in. 
Yeah, um, big question, uh, very relevant question. Um, I'm going to try my best to to give some input there, but uh, also counting on my co-panelists. Um, but yeah, um, especially when it comes to mental health, uh, that's also something that we work on in Eurocities, but um, sort of on a different angle. Um, so the way that our organization works is that we have different forums, and then in those forums, according to um, policy area, we have different working groups where different cities come together to work on a particular issue. One of them, for instance, being migration and integration, which um, for the work that I'm doing is, is the most relevant. Um, but then we also have other uh, working groups that, for instance, look at um, urban aging, that also look at children, where, of course, this mental health element comes in just as much. Um, and I think especially when it comes to the social isolation that a lot of different groups have experienced during the pandemic, it also makes sense to make it specific according to the needs of the particular group, right? So whether that be um, elder people in cities, whether that be people with a migrant background in cities, whether that be, uh, for instance, um, single mothers that had childcare duties that uh, exploded during the pandemic. So I think according to the different needs of, of those priority groups, um, mental health services would also have to have different um, approaches, right? Um, when it comes to, to mental health um, and well-being of um, uh, migrant or refugees com refugee communities and cities, um, that's also something where we saw quite a lot of cities uh, stepping up um, and also making sure that, for instance, the, uh, the services on offer, again, were accessible in different languages, that information about the pandemic, information about uh, support services were also put out there in, in the different languages spoken by the communities. Um, so, yeah. Uh, definitely a big, big topic in, in the cities that we work with. Um, does anyone else have any thoughts on this point? Yes, uh, I raise my oh, yeah, hand. Yeah, uh, I think by this question, I will um, invite everyone a uh, call to action kind of thing. We have uh, designed Cities for Her, one initiative at New Women Connector, which we held one uh, event in um, 2019 in Amsterdam and uh, in Utrecht in Netherlands and then we had hit the COVID and then we go to online and but we keep uh, this our movement and what we did we really make a mechanism and some kind of a online um, uh, engagement you know virtual gathering where we give um, in different languages uh, facilitation in Farsi, in Arabic, in Urdu, Hindi, Punjabi, uh, Spanish, where um, migrant and refugee, especially women, they talk about what's important for them to talk. Because this isolation of this COVID, they really hit us, everyone, regardless where we are. And this mental uh, health is very important to understand. And this kind of platform really give you, you are not alone. There are so many like you and which we feel connect and safe feel safe and that's what we are planning to do uh, in physically in a hybrid or especially in a uh, in our local level we're trying to bring more to listen to each other and to really think what is a new norm how we can teach about our children our future because where we were saying oh we need to stay together and we need to hug each other we need to handshake but all everything it changed everything is changed. Now we are saying, do not touch anyone, do not shake hand and keep the distance. So how we can say the children, what is, you know, new norm? And our mental health is in a big shock still. We are not realizing, but it is 
we are still thinking, okay, what is normal and what is not? So I love to, you know, stay in touch and to see how we can really bring this uh, uh, element, human element, which is happens in a daily basis with all of us. Yeah. Thank you, Anila. And Scarlett, um, I'm going to reframe the question a little bit um, um, for you and, and also pair it with another one that we've had come in. Um, so first on the mental health and well-being, um, do employers have a role in this and, and how are they kind of embracing that role when it comes mm. to migrants and refugees? And then uh, we also have a question about skilled refugees in Scandinavia in particular, since that was um, quite a big issue um, prior to the pandemic. I'm interested in whether um, there are any initiatives there that you can point to that are, that are working well um, to, to facilitate labor market integration. Yeah, so on the mental health um, side, I think this is obviously, the pandemic has exacerbated this without a doubt, but is an issue regardless. So, I mean, one of the one of the kind of roles that we play is on informing employers about best practices when it comes to hiring refugees. So we've worked on tutorials for HR teams, for example, um, that look at issues like how to um, identify and recruit refugees, um, how to ensure that the workplace is, you know, kind of culturally appropriate and sensitive um, and ensure the longer term integration um, of refugees so that both the employers and the employees are set up for success. And we do have, um, and this is based on best practices um, gleaned from kind of, you know, dozens of interviews with, with companies as well as refugee employees at businesses in terms of what is the kind of either the gold standard or what companies can strive towards. And there are aspects in there that are very much related to um, kind of mental health and well-being and, and pointing out for employers things to keep in mind. Um, that that we think are very important based on what we've heard back again from both employees and employers so we do have those kind of resources for employers um, and specifically for hr teams or others who are going to be or managers hr teams i would say and managers who are going to be um you know onboarding refugees into into the workplace so that's something that we um that we take a look at and then um <clears throat> what was the second question again um, the second question is about um, initiatives in Scandinavia that oh. relate to skilled refugees. Right. So I actually I don't know my, my colleague who's based in the Netherlands, I think, would be better positioned to answer this. But I will say that we our work is really dependent on um, sort of entire ecosystem of NGOs. So in the US, it's resettlement agencies or an organization called Upwardly Global that specifically works with high skilled refugees and immigrants in the US. And then similarly in Europe, where we um, we rely on the organizations that are really kind of you know out there serving refugees and migrants on a day to day basis, um, including lower skilled and, and more high skilled. So that if, for example, um, you know Phillips um, is interested in hiring 100 refugees, which is a project we're working on with them, and they're looking for very specific capacities and skill sets, um, that's not something that we ourselves can orchestrate. But we work with NGOs in the Netherlands or in Germany, France, UK um, that have that. Um, kind of you know amazing access I would say to um, refugees and migrants from all different backgrounds um, and then we can work with companies in terms of what is some additional training that might be necessary um, to get this candidate kind of ready for the job so don't have specifics in Scandinavia but happy to follow up and put um, the person who asked that question in touch with my colleague thank you so much 
Um, Christina, I'm going to do the same thing of kind of uh, coupling together two questions that have come in. Um, so one is on this idea of a mental health and well-being um, recovery. And then the second um, is about involving refugees in the planning process and whether you can talk about any initiatives that you've come across um, in that regard. Sure, both great questions. Um, well, in terms of mental health, I think what I can add here, because the other panelists have, have done such a nice job covering this, um, is really around the concept of belonging, which is one of the most important elements of, of mental health, feeling a sense of belonging, um, and to highlight that this is both interpersonal belonging, you know, how do we feel interacting with other people, how do we feel interacting with people across differences, are we part of our neighborhoods? Are we part of our, our local communities? Do we feel that? And another part is structural, and it's everything else we've been talking about today, the economic, social, and civic recovery. You know, can you run for office? Can you access the benefits of economic recovery and the supports that are coming? And does your legal status allow you to do that? Um, so I think these are all really important parts of um, a strong mental health support system is ensuring that from every um, sector, leaders are fostering belonging and that they're doing that in both interpersonal ways with sort of inclusion nudges within their organizations, um, but also in the structural systems that, that they're creating. Um, and then the second question was around um, refugee involvement in community planning, was that right? Okay. Um, yeah, you know, this is really um, a strong element of the 50 or so community plans that we've helped local governments in the United States to develop. Um, and, you know, what we often say is that the um, multi-sector strategic plan and the publication of it is oftentimes not really the most important part. The most important part is the process that brings together multi-sector leaders, and that involves community engagement. Um, and community engagement is, of course, a spectrum that ranges from one-time feedback to sort of long-term, um, really meaningful feedback loops and leadership within organizations. Um, and so part of what happens in these community planning processes is that um, sometimes places start with initial feedback, like a survey, and making sure that um, it really reaches refugee residents by using trusted connectors, people who can really, you know, help to, um, to deliver the survey in language that makes sense and talk about what it's really for. Um, and that by starting these sorts of relationships with trusted connector organizations and individuals, then governments, businesses, others that are in positions of power can develop longer term, meaningful relationships with organizations that have a direct connection to refugee organizations. Um, and this can then translate into, you know, refugees serving in elected office, refugees serving in leadership positions within organizations. Um, so sometimes we see things start small um, and then, you know, develop over time strategies to really build leadership so that um, refugees are in those positions of, of power. Thank you. Um, and I'm going to turn now to Katerina um, um, to answer the question about um, guild refugees in Scandinavia and whether this has improved. But I'm also going to throw in a big picture question since we're nearing the end, which is what do cities need 
from the EU institutions when it comes to building an inclusive recovery? What's kind of top on your um, wish list? I always like the questions about the wish lists, <laughs> but perhaps to start with the um, with the other question about um, recruitment of refugees in Scandinavia, um, I'm afraid I also don't have exact numbers on that because it's it's quite a, a specific um, context also on the national level, whereas with cities it's um, it's a bit more tricky to collect that data. Um, but I know, um, or I can tell you that, of course, um, in Scandinavia, there are different programs and different initiatives in cities as well, um, where cities are trying to recruit more skilled um, refugees. Um, so I think that's, that's quite an interesting situation in, in Finland, for instance, but also in Sweden, where different cities are really stepping up and looking how they can sort of yeah, look at the national level when it comes to immigration um, requirements and so on, that usually cities or the local authorities, they are not really, um, they don't really have the competence as such, but how can you link up with the national government uh, in that perspective? Um, I would also mention just that, um, just on that uh, topic specifically, there's also an interesting um, initiative, um, which is also coming now to, to the EU, called Talent Beyond Boundaries, um, which perhaps you also want to, want to check out, um, because it seems like a quite practical way of uh, for employers to get in touch um, with, with that organization to see whether um, profiles that are already being submitted um, of people with, with a refugee status, whether those can be linked up with the vacancies in a company. Um, so perhaps also something um, uh, to, to check out there. And then um, what, what do cities need uh, from the EU uh, in terms of an inclusive recovery? I mean, um, I think this also links up to something that Christina was, was saying earlier um, and something that we see in cities is, of course, um, before the pandemic, but now even more so tight budgets when it comes to different uh, integration measures. Um, and of, the, of course, the um, EU funding plays, plays a major role in just upkeeping different projects, uh, making sure they are sustainable, making sure that they have a perspective that goes beyond just one, two, three years, but really has sort of a vision for integration in a city. Um, and I think there, when it comes to the to the next funding period of 2021 to 2027, um, we've seen in different funding programs at the EU level that there is a local perspective. So that's good already. And, and that's positive, for instance, when it comes to the um, AMF, the Asylum Migration Integration Fund, uh, when it comes to different other funds, um, not to become too technical now, but different other funds that govern integration. Um, but I think what is needed now is, of course, that the member states, the national level, takes that seriously and also includes cities um, in um, implementing and preparing and drafting uh, those different uh, funds. So that's something that now, um, as cities uh, and working for cities, we, we like to repeat that, of course, um, it's good to, that it's there in the text, but member state governments, uh, they need to take that seriously as well and make, need to make sure that the different funding programs correspond to the challenges, to the needs that cities are facing on the ground when it comes to the integration of migrants and refugees. Thank you. And I'm gonna reframe same question to Anila um, about priorities. We've spoken very eloquently about the need for meaningful participation rather than uh, tokenism. But I was wondering when it comes to money, to funding priorities, particularly when it comes to EU funding, what's top of your yeah, uh, I think the question has answered with it itself. 
what we need is really required to listen. Are we asking the same question with the same approach or we really want to listen? We are really trying to implement via putting this kind of question to the cities, how we can engage refugee and migrants, but we really need to feel that transformation. You know, it's not, we are not giving some kind of favor to the people who are coming here. We always say we are creating welcoming society, but giving them more space and more, uh, you know, contribution and confidence. So they feel part of the society, part of the discussion. And these resources, especially these financial resources, gives you the edge and expertise and confidence like you can really do. Like if I say I want to uh, change my uh, living room, what I need, I really need resources. I really need to bring this all planning. And I can't plan anything if we do not have the, um, uh, you know, uh, resources financial resources coming so that's why it's, it's really needed how we can allocate it but who are making this decision of this allocation who are held the power to make this decision who gets what and how so i would just again and instead of answering a question i'm posing more questions sorry for that but i think this is a moment for us to reflect within ourselves to reflect how we are planning and how we are engaging people but also giving them power to be part of these decisions. Thank you. Thank you for that point, which we are gonna end with because I'd love to um, open the floor for discussion around that point and go back to Christina and Scarlett, but I've been instructed to finish on time because we have such a tight agenda. Um, so perhaps we can move this discussion to Hoover. Um, I was gonna ask Scarlett what employers need from policymakers, and I was gonna ask Christina what lessons that you can learn from North America and vice versa. So if you want to move that to Hoover, I'd love it. Um, you can also on Hoover access some of the recordings from yesterday's sessions if you didn't get the chance to listen. Um, next on the agenda, starting in two minutes, there are three breakout sessions. They all look terrific. I want to clone myself. There's refugee and migrant inclusion in smaller and rural communities. Digital equity, how will uh, digitization impact migrant and refugee inclusion? and strengthening the social innovation ecosystem in challenging times. To join, you just click on the Hoover agenda. If you have problems, email events at migrationpolicy.org. For the smaller and rural communities session, we have simultaneous interpretation. That means that the session might start with a two minute delay as our technical partners need a moment to set it up. Thank you so much, everyone. This has been a really terrific, engaging session. Um, thank you to all of our panelists um, and have a great day, everyone.